1: Welcome to the very latest edition of the Premier View Tipperary GAA podcast. Don't forget to give us a follow if you haven't done so already on Twitter. We are at Premier View Pod. On Facebook, our page is the Premier View Podcast and on Instagram, where we are Premier View Podcast. We have up to the minute news and all things tip GAA across all our socials, plus the odd giveaway, so don't miss out. If you're a Spotify listener, don't forget to hit follow and also hit the bell so that you never miss a podcast episode. Hello and welcome to the Plainview podcast today. I'm de- absolutely delighted to be joined by Shane Smith. Uh, coaching guru, uh masters in sports science, primary school teacher, and juvenile coach. So, Shane, welcome! Thanks a million for agreeing to do the one-on-one for the Premier View podcast. This podcast is going to be really interesting to I think any hurling, any underage coach, because I'm looking at your Twitter profile down there now, your ex profile, and you have some great kind of you have a great presence there, and you have some you have some great pointers and. For coaches or for even parents and stuff, anyone playing the game, I'm just going to start and just going to read one out there which got a lot of likes. The longer I coach, the more I realize that coaching isn't about making children technically brilliant from a lot, young age. It's about retaining them playing until a later age. And then you also have a good one below that. It's like Ten Commandments. You know things like be quick to praise and catch them doing well. So all this you can see that you're a good deep thinker about the game. So welcome aboard. What I'm hoping to do this evening is just kind of go through a few different teams of specific questions on coaching and your philosophy, I suppose, and also more general discussions on banding and age grades and, and all that. So I suppose just to welcome aboard, is, uh, first of all, we, we'll kick off, you know, we we'll say on the juvenile side. And I suppose the first question I'll ask is, if you encourage equal game time for juveniles, how do you meet the expectations of parents who have more talented kids, I suppose, or talented at that age?
0: Yeah, I suppose that's well. Thanks very much for inviting me on. It's great to have a chat. I suppose fundamentally, I think it's important to uh, define, define what you coach and, and and define what you're about and define your values very early on with parents. And um, you know, if you look at like the player pathway in the GAA, it's kind of underpinned by by six key principles in that, like club is core and um, it's player centred. We're given the quality coaching experience you you connect with the players it's it's inclusive and as many as possible for as long as possible so I'm of the um I, I really believe in that we just should try and keep as many as possible for as long as possible. I mean and how do you how do you develop them all at at different levels? So well, I think that's a challenge um to give every child an opportunity to develop that their own skill sets at their level and from a practical sense like what does it look like? Well, well fundamentally I think um like every child has talents that needs to be nurtured you know so like i think the role of the coach is like just like the parents for example let 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 the coach um, coach as much as possible and give the children an opportunity to play and um you know as, as well as that, i think like sometimes we get a bit too um, to release us too young and i think we need a little bit more patience with our with our with our children as well um you know, we look at the, the late developers. We'll chat about that. I, I assume shortly, but there's not awful lot of late developers out there. So, in terms of engaging all the children, I, I always my big mantra is like small-sided games. Um, so in small-sided games, we're maximising ball contact and maximising inclusion. And in terms of developing different levels within those games, for example, if you have a hurling session and you're playing six v six. You could ask your more advanced players to try and strike three or four times off their left side, develop that sort of skill set. Whereas a player that's not quite there yet, I mean their challenge in that game could be to get um two or three roll lifts and get the first touch right and get some good striking out of hands, you know. So it's about catching them doing well in little games and, and looking beyond the results as uh, as success only
1: absolutely and i suppose that that's that's a great introduction introduction you mentioned a couple of things like you know games based coaching catching doing well and i suppose then when you're talking about maybe just you, you're taught in the basics and you're you're into splitting you know teams that are lucky enough to have kind of big numbers do you think club a and b juvenile panels should be split by age or by ability
0: yeah, that's really interesting. Like that's kind of biobanding you're talking about there. It's and could yeah. you just
1: maybe just focus because bio banding is, is one of those things that's becoming very popular as you know, it's, as a, a, in the yeah. game. Just maybe to think to talk about that as, as well for a second.
0: That's so topical right now. now biobanding will be um like physical Maturation versus chronological age. For example, there is not a lot of really good work going on at the moment and Clare as well, and Clare GA, and that, and it's fascinating to see. So is we know, can, like,
1: yeah, exactly. Putting lads all the same size, marking each other, rather than you know if they're if they're the same age, they might be like January, in, both born in January, but there might be a foot foot difference in 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 size or something like that.
0: Yeah, and that comes from the or in the or the relative age effect where there's lots of um, writing out there to suggest that the the players that are in or were in international squads and they were in the development squads were born in the first three months of the year. And sometimes when you think about it, Kevin, I mean, you look at a child that's born on the 1st of January, a child that's born on the 30th of December in the same year, and they're playing together. So naturally, um, there'll be a disadvantage there. So I think it's about giving every child an opportunity to compete in um, as someone, someone born in November,
1: Shane, I completely agree with that, you know. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so you would be one of those maybe late developers in sports. So it's about like our players not, not slipping, it? and it's fascinating to look to look at our, our late development, I mean, even in football, for example, getting okay, football, I look at like players like, who weren't minors, like Damien Comer wasn't a minor, F Galway, Bernard Brogan wasn't a minor, like Brian Fenton wasn't a minor for Dublin, Lee Keegan wasn't a minor, so it's about like, ensuring that these players don't slip through the net and give equal, equal opportunity for them to, you know, stay in the game, and I suppose the only child you can't coach is the child that isn't there, so I'm beginning to keep as many as possible within the game, and, You know just being patient with because even even on 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 the research i mean we don't we don't look at children that play sport in order to win every single match they play that's not not their sole motivation their motivation is very varied and it's not solely based on i want to win every single match that i play and for us as coaches it's to meet those needs to ensure that we keep as many as possible for as long as possible in a positive coaching environment where everyone is developing at their level and i think it is possible
1: Absolutely, and I suppose with the, with the biobanding, one of the good ideas I heard was that, you know, maybe once a month or whatever in, in training, you'd say maybe, you say I think it's you put the the last quarter, boys, you know, you you start the cutoff at 1st of October or whatever, so the boys in October, November, December, are actually, like, you know, the, the leaders of the opportunity. So just maybe, you know, when you are picking your juvenile teams, would you put the emphasis on keeping Players that are the same age, maybe going to school together and all that together, or would you do it by more by ability at that
0: moment in time? Say so have similar abilities, yeah. t- playing with each other. We're talking about goal games, yeah. So the, the goal games model is that everyone gets a goal, yeah. Everyone plays, um, everyone gets equal game time. Everyone gets equal opportunity. Um, in, in goal games here in Dublin, when they get under nine, uh, it's recommended that streaming happens, so you separate into your teams based on ability. So. But I suppose um, that's subjective and that's people's opinion on that. I always go back to Kevin to say, like, I always say what's best for the child? And I think the more we look at coaching through the lens of the child, the more we can learn about what they want. So, for example, if a child is playing in Division 1 and they get one touch a half, as opposed to if that child is playing in a lower division, And they get 10 touches a half. I'll always ask the question, where is the child happier? Where is the child developing? And that's entirely up to the club, how they want to implement that philosophy. But I think it always goes back to, like, we look at child-centered coaching and ask what's best for the child. And what's best for the child would be so they're in an environment where they can develop their skills in a positive environment with their friends, where there's kind of an irrelevance to winning or losing at that age, because there has to be. And we don't keep results at goal games, for example. So there is some research in, a, in, in an education setting around peer learning, around reading groups, for example, and that's fascinating. But from a sports perspective, I always say, what's best for the child, and where will the child develop the most?
1: And you're a you're a big proponent of the games based co- coaching model. And I suppose one of the questions is, what do you think is the uh, at a very young age, what is the optimum? Amount of players per per team or per side, you know w- when you're having your
0: games. Yeah, yeah, that's I'm really, I'm like smaller sided games give so many opportunities for children to flourish. You know, I mean, there's so many studies around that too. There's a small sided game study on basketball. Um, either age 15 to 19, and like optimizing technical skills, um, increased by 60% when they went from a 4v4 to a 2v2 for example you know some research on soccer is like 66 versus 3v3 and the number of kicks short passes tackling dribbling was significantly higher and provided you know physical conditioning and technical improvements so you look at the Belgium FA when they restructured back in 2000 you know they did some they did some research and um, they analyzed 1500 games and some kids were getting two touches of the ball in the game, you know. So, like, too much emphasis was placed on winning. So, they changed their whole structure around smaller-sided games and went towards a 2v2, 5v5, 8v8 model. And I think in the G-A, um, like, sometimes you get to under, under 10, 11. We're on a 10, 11 aside, you know. And it's, it's a lot of players on the pitch. um. But I think from a coach's perspective, like we can't control, like, like dare we say it, that, you know, sometimes I'm like, I'm not sure all children enjoy playing the matches at the weekend. Like not all children love playing the matches, but they might love the training session. They might love the coaching. They might love the fact that we can play 4v4, 5v5, 6v6, maximize their ball contact. Maximize their inclusion, maximize their development. So that that's a really enjoyable experience for children. I'm not sure all children really enjoy playing eleven v eleven at the weekends because they might not get much uh, many touches of the ball.
1: Yeah, ab- absolutely, you've 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 touched on something there. I suppose that will my chat about others is that the impact of what what you know what can the GA learn from other jurisdictions and from others sports uh, as well. But one of the key questions, I suppose, that's come in uh, when we heard his success at underage. Now, I'm taking success here maybe to mean winning trophies or w- w- winning winning titles. It might be different things in different clubs. But I suppose for or, and other than, I suppose, winning trophies, how would you judge success or other than player retention, how would you judge success of an underage coaching model?
0: Yeah, well, I would judge success by, by, by retention, of course. Then, um, you know, once those children you're coaching are coming back to you week after week, month after month, year after year, that's success. You bring a team right through to minor, that's success. But also, like, the reason why children are playing sport is like, there are numerous reasons, of course, but to have fun, to be with their friends and to get better at a task. And I've spoken about this before, this task orientation. It's like children not being motivated to win every match they play. Children are really motivated to improve at a skill. That, that's that intrinsic motivation. And that's why, in many cases, you look at children, and we can find the little wins in the game beyond the result. The little wins, like, maybe they executed a skill. Maybe they got two blocks. Maybe they struck the ball out of their hands for the first time. Maybe they kicked it over the bar for the first time. Maybe they tackled really well. They passed really well. Like all these little wins are intrinsic motivations for children. So the result is not bigger for a child than how they did themselves. So that's that task orientation. I want to get better at this solo. I want to get better at this jab list. I want to get better at this strike. And you'll find if a child does get better at those skills, and implements those skills in the game, you'll find that they are motivated and they are playing well. So we just got to find successes beyond winning or losing. Because like, if we only value success with medals and trophies, we're setting our children up for failure. Absolutely. Is, is it harder, you know, when you
1: get to maybe a quarterfinal or a semi final? And often it's the coaches you see maybe are, are, the, are the ones driving this. Is it, you know, to maybe dampen down it? Of us here, we want to make sure everyone gets all game time. Is it just a matter of getting that culture inside a club where you know the, the medal is really only a bonus
0: underage? Yeah, yeah, that's defining why you coach, you know, that's just defining why you coach. And you know, being in a situation where you're happy to give equal game time, and um, because we, we look at the reasons why children are leaving sport, I mean, some of the research around that it's like an increased focus on performance, increased focus on results, new coaches, and a change in coaches' attitude and philosophy. So we look at the key ages around the age of 13, 14, where we see the dropout in sport, and in many cases, that's when the sport becomes um, competitive. I understand like, competition is healthy, like it's healthy competition. I understand we get to an age where it gets competitive, that's no problem at all, but there was an ERSI study in, uh, was it 2013, 10 years old now, but looked at the dropout rates, you know, and looked at like 75% dropout in the ages of 21 and 26. Um, and then in, in 2017, the LGFA commissioned a survey and it was like, by the age of 13, one and two girls have dropped out of sport, you know. So that's their challenge is try and keep as many as possible playing. But if we're focused on winning only as success, is that what's best for the child? Or is that what's best for the coach? And it's all going back to defining why you coach and what you're about as a club. And that's,
1: I think that's an, when we talk about player retention, that's coming across really strongly from you. As in, you know, one of, I think the magic question that everyone would love to know from you might be, how do we stop player dropout after minor or at minor, you know? But I think it's, it's clear that if you're only focusing, if you're only asking that question when you get to minor, it's probably too late. And you've actually presented some very good stats there. I'm actually surprised by those, um, particularly the, the dropout in girls and also that, you know, there's such a strong dropout from the 21 because if you're still playing at 21, you're probably a stronger player, but you're still leaving.
0: Yeah, and look, there's a lot going on in, in the lives of teams teenagers and young adults too. And there's many reasons why they're, they're giving up. They're changing schools and um, new circular friends, maybe new sports, you know, there's not awful lot going on. Um, but what but, but if we know a lot of them are leaving because it gets too competitive as a change of coach, change of coaching philosophy. I think we can do something about that. I've often spoken about the five-a-side culture in, uh, in GA. You, you, you take, for example, and, someone finishes up playing sport 37, 38 they go and play five a side you know yeah. or, or tag whatever it may be maybe there's an opportunity to implement that culture in a where club whereas like you just have the facilities there if you look looking, you have the facilities you know you've got pitches um, and like you can just these Players, these teenagers could come to the club once a week and play seven v seven, eight v eight. It's been trialing in Jura actually, and it's been very successful. Um, non-competitive, just turn up, arrive at seven, play seven to eight, and off you go. And some children, you know, I said earlier on, not every child grows up with the ambition to play in Crow Park or or the Aviva like a lot of children do of course and we have to meet their needs as well Um, and it's so important to meet their needs too I really can't emphasize that enough it's so important to try and meet the needs of all the players and the players that need and require that extra development we should give it to them and you know I was involved in high-performance coaching previously, and it's a really, really enjoyable place to be, watching players flourish and maybe get onto to the, the, the county squad. It's very, very rewarding. But that's the small percentage. We have to look after them, but we also must look after the majority of players too within our clubs and keep them involved and keep them playing. And how do we do that? Well, we do that by making it enjoyable, removing the pressure to win. We do that by developing a positive environment around training. We do that by ensuring that each child gets equal game time and same child is not the sub every week. And that's how we keep the children playing.
1: Absolutely. And you've, you've mentioned, I think the GA is now only sta- starting to scratch the surface on social hurling, social football, mamogi, mm-hmm. all that sort of stuff where you see, you know, you see it in the five a side soccer kind of model once you have the skills you can use them for life and it's something that the ga really um you know hurling for over 40s or whatever it is you know is only really starting to to kind of like get to grips with now just to kind of just to kind of move move it on and, and focus on a little bit something a little bit different now so you know you have a you you are a coach under age or you know um you're 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 working with other coaches I suppose, how do you They might not be that confident for example and and you see just like they might spend more of their time just kind of there for a chat rather than kind of inputting fully on the session so how do you almost coach to coach to kind of take a full part in yeah many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out my solution is plush care
0: I think if we want to develop, um, develop our players, we've got to keep on developing our coaching, you know. And I'm a big advocate in coach education. I'm, I'm constantly upskilling myself as well with coaching courses. And I think it's all about giving people and new coaches the opportunity to learn new things and to introduce them to new coaching concepts. And to get them involved, I mean, you take a squad of 24 players, say, for example. I mean, some, say the lead coach might just take that session and do it all. And sometimes we become immersed in that session if you're the lead coach. And you might have two or three people with you as selectors and you're not utilising them. So I think it also goes back to the management structure and the coaching structure and, and to be happy to step back. And let's say you have 24 players, why not set up three different stations and have one game 4v4, four four, small-sided game. One game 4v4 four four could be backs 3 forwards, and one game 4v4 four four, or one game 8 could be striking in pairs, kicking in pairs, or skill development. You know, so it's about setting up the station coaching environment in order to include other coaches. And I always say, like, good people make good coaches. Do you know? Just because you've played doesn't mean you're a brilliant coach. It's because you haven't played doesn't mean you're a brilliant coach. Like, good people in general make good coaches and have good uh, interpersonal skills, good communication skills. So when you set up a game-based coaching, I think it's, it's comfortable for anyone to go in there and take a station and let the game flow because uh, the game is the best learner, in my opinion. And like coaching is also, is also is, is almost like... A voyage of self discovery for, for players who are out there. It's okay to make a mistake. It's okay. To learn from it and move on. I think it to give players that platform. And that's how we incorporate more coaches in with us. Those who, who haven't played or aren't overly confident, we just give them the tools and set it up for them and, and, and kind of empower them to come in and coach.
1: Is that, and you know, we see, and we all have always seen in the GA, a lot of parents becoming coaches or naturally being coaches for their, you know, sometimes it's practicality. They, they kind of have, because they're dropping the the son or the daughter down, they, they almost have to coach their own, the cohort that they're in your, what's your view on just parents coaching? Are they sometimes too hard or sometimes too soft on, on their own? And is there any kind of effective way you can think about managing that?
0: That's such a really broad question because everyone is so different, you know, we're all so unique and, I think most people that go in with a team, 99% go in with the best of intentions. Really, really, I've learned that over the years coaching, 99% go in there with the best of intentions to do their best and meet the needs of the children that come training. And it's funny, like, you look at some reason why kids go training, and like some put meet their friends, others go to develop more skills. Some like the relay races, some like the matches, some enjoy the fun games, some want to really improve our skill set. So it's about incorporating all those attributes into our culture sessions and meeting all those needs. But in terms of, like the the so many of our teams are owned by our parents, right?
1: Mm.
0: Yeah. You know so without, without them, where would you be?
1: Exactly, and is that you can you can think maybe to kind of it's like it encourage more more mothers or to to be involved or, or more kind uh, of so, so, um more existing player more existing players to be part of coaching teams. I know that you know the even for a club player now like the the load on you can be kind of a lot. Is there anything you can think to encourage? Like, obviously, we'd all love to give back to the club
0: and that, but uh. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I'm all for empowering new parents and getting them involved and getting the paperwork done and getting more parents, because the more parents and the more adults you have involved in your team, think about it, the the higher quality of coaching you'll get. And also, the easier it is to manage groups. Did you ever try and be with a large group, like, you know, one or two coaches, two or three coaches, but a large group, it's challenging. So the more coaches you have there with you, the better and so i'd be all empowering new parents and i like there's no one reinventing the coaching wheel kevin you know it's like coaching is you know it's not it's not overly complex and when you empower more parents and if you have again you've got 24 children and if you imagine you had you know you had four or five coaches within that group and you could have little small groups of coaching where they're maximizing the opportunities to develop their skills in a smaller environment. So the more coaches you have, the better it'll run. So I'd also encourage clubs to get as many of the parents involved as possible, and um, and you'll grow your coaching team from there. And the other thing you might have um, I guess uh, one, uh, you might have some of your senior players coming down and um, to get involved with a team. And of course, they're the lifeblood of, of clubs as well, coming down and giving their expertise to a team and uh, to go in and coach them. So yeah, definitely.
1: I think that's yeah, that's coming across really clear is that developing a style, a coaching style is really important or, you know, you might call it philosophy, but a bit of a, a coaching personality that's individual. You know, you, you can't really take on someone else's co- coaching kind of personality. You have to develop your own and that comes with confidence as well. And just, I suppose, throw it in the way we you stand on the concept of uh, silent sidelines. It's another one that's kind of becoming popular.
0: Isn't it so uh, topical recently, silent sidelines? I think it's because when children, are you picture a child 9, 10 years of age and one 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 person is saying kick it, one person is saying run with it, one person is saying pass it, one person is saying watch behind you, one person is saying watch your back, watch your left, watch your right. It gets terribly confusing. So I wouldn't be an advocate of silent sidelines. I'd be an advocate of quieter sidelines. And, you know, you might have your culture too that the children... And um, are used to being with during during the week and um, from coaching, and they might be the ones giving the little instructions. But from parents encouraging, saying, Well done, saying great, strike, like, I it's wonderful that sort of positive reinforcement from parents as well. And like, there's nothing more joyful from a parent than watching your child out there playing. So, I'd be an advocate of quieter sidelines and just in terms of the instructions and the coaching, I think let the coach coach and, and let the children play. I think we have to, uh, look at that for because I mean when you're in you know when you yourself and you play the game you're not really hearing much hmm. when you're in e-picture it's intensity multi-directional you've got a split second to make a decision you're not hearing too much in that kind of high intensity environment because a decision must be made very very quickly so we all have four quieter sidelines definitely
1: Definitely, you know I suppose three related questions on co- coaching three, as well that have that have come in is right, you're a coach. How long as a coach would you expect team talks to be, but before a game and at half time? And related to that would be, what does an effective team talk look like? I think you know who sent that in question is asking for a lot there because different circumstances, different things that I know you there's no magic bullet there. So you might want to answer that one first. And then the role of visual aids, if there is any role, and maybe at what age that you should start introducing them into a team talk or into a training session. We all know the Limerick, Paul Knurk and his tactics board there now. So uh, if, you, if you're if you a top upcoming coach now underage, would you be ordering one for, for the Christmas off Santa?
0: For the under-9s?
1: Yeah, exactly. Oh, if they're not using by under-9s, forget about it. They never
0: get it. <laughs> <laughs> I was reading there recently about it. It's all age specific, you know, but I was reading there recently about him um, and attention spans today. Um, we are listening for uh, for eight seconds. Um, so like when we're talking too long, I mean, they're probably not listening, and it's to have that awareness that you know, we always say like three stars and a wish. I always use that mantra, three stars and a wish. So, three good things and one thing to improve on. So, if you can really, um, Catch them doing well in a game, and this could be under 10s, 12s, 14s. Catch them doing well. Sometimes we think our role is to fix every single problem when we come to coaching, but sure, we haven't got all the answers at all. You know, we can facilitate the coaching, but coaching is self discovery. The learning is when it happens and when they, when execute a scale or do a particular sidestep or get some space that eureka moment whoa that was great some things that we can't coach well, isn't isn't it?
1: you know that's key as yeah. well just to pick up on the point you made there is that right you might be getting well beat in an under nines game or or whatever there you're not going to fix everything at half time and go out you know no matter if you give the, the team talk of your life you know it's about just maybe picking up on a couple of things that they can do better in the second half or you, you've spotted as well
0: well, under nine team talks now I wouldn't be something I'd be advocating to, to for too long, do you know? So it's it's all very relative to the age group that you work with because sure the under nine team talks. They're not listening too much of that edge. I don't want to see us same. No. Not at all. So I'd say three stars and I wish so um listen, you're 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 striking the ball really, really well. I saw you blocking down that play, it was brilliant. And you're working really hard as a team. Well done, guys. Now maybe we might work on, let's try and strike on our other side for this half. Only who can get a strike or two on their other side. You know, and just challenge them a little bit. Because as we know, children are not motivated in these games to win every single time they play. It's not about winning, winning, winning. They want to improve at a task. So if we can give them specific tasks to improve on and find those little wins, just to find those little wins, that's more valuable than any sort of uh, five-minute, team talk that we think they might be switched on for
1: yeah exactly when jake morris the tip senior harder there the the other day and we were just asking about i suppose the atmosphere in the modern inter-county halftime dressing room and you know it's not all as you'd expect i suppose you know managers banging banging hardies on tables and all that it is very much data driven and you know maybe what are, are you hitting your metrics
0: yeah it's data driven and I suppose the main dressing rooms they go into the little groups and they talk through what's going well but they also highlight what's going well I think we have sometimes we think that we have to fix everything and find other problems I think we have to catch players doing well as well regardless of their age and give them that positive reinforcement and give them that confidence that yeah it's going well and sometimes you know you don't always have to say too much sometimes it is going well and that's enough
1: yeah that's great and- do you think that inter- county, the inter-county development squad, what, is, again, no, putting you too much on the spot, what is, do you think they should be starting at or do you think that they play a big role in player development? Because then could that actually be a driver in a player stepping away or losing interest in the game if they don't get on that team, you know, under 13 or under 14 or whatever, you know? They're not being, I suppose, their efforts aren't being validated and they might be, they, they, you know, it might be a big disincentive for them.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think we've loads to learn in GA around their coaching and their coaching structures. Like, like for example, like like going back maybe a couple of years, 20, 30 years, whatever, the first games are under ten, maybe, you know. Now our first games are what? Are you under seven? Where where what age group did you start playing matches, Tip? Under eight?
1: Blitz is under seven you'd have under seven Blitz.
0: Seven, yeah. Kind so of like
1: age, different clubs but not too competitive.
0: Yeah. But they're going into matches at under seven, which is probably six-year-olds, is it? Yeah, and below. And below. So, like, you tell me a five or six-year-old that's ready for a match, you know? So, I, I think we need to slow it down a little bit. I think we need to value our our, our nurseries in our clubs, our our, our um, nurseries on a Saturday morning where we're working on fundamental movement, like, like running, jumping, catching, kicking, throwing. I think... We look at the research around that. So, those fundamental movement skills actually plateau and stop progressing when children reach around the age of ten. But but they can be mastered by the they can be mastered by the age of about eight. So we've got a window there, age five to eight, to develop those fundamental movement skills of running, jumping, throwing, catching. And you know they're the building blocks as we go forward. I'm um, looking at all our skills, agility, balance, coordination. I mean, we see balance all the time in our matches. We see agility in our matches, and it's really important to develop those skills. And then when we go into our matches too young, I mean, what happens after that is maybe some boredom kicks in as well because it happened too young. So I'd love if we just slowed it down a little bit, and kept the children in a nursery, developing the agility, balance, coordination, run, jump, throw, catch, those fundamental movement skills as building blocks for more complex skills. Um, and from there, they may be into matches under, under nine, under ten. It's is quite sufficient. I think that we should just slow it all down a little bit.
1: That's, that's, again, that's another really good point on the fundamental movement because if you think if you rock down into a field on a Saturday morning and if you're at football training or hurling training, and you know if they're if they're just running or jumping, they're not actually they don't have a hurley in their hand. Do you think as a coach you could be you know under under pressure? As in, again, it might be a confidence thing that you you know you know that this is actually the best for for this age group.
0: Yeah, and um, or part of a player you know,
1: pathway as well, having the, that whole of
0: club approach. Yeah, and it's tough because everyone's trying to keep up with everybody else, aren't they? You know, they're going in matches under at six year olds, so we need to do the same. And um but you know, I always go back to what's best for the child, you know, and um where will the child be happier? And I personally think if I were a five or a six year old would be happier in an environment of play which involves running, jumping, throwing, catching, chasing, as opposed to an environment of, main 7v7 or 8v8 match where they may not have that much ball contact or they may not be involved as much. So I think we can take a step back a little bit to meet the children's needs and slow it down a little bit too. Um, So then when they're ready for a match, they go into a match.
1: Absolutely. And I suppose, Shane, we've been on a grand tour here of you know from I suppose the starting off the the coaching that we touched on fundamental movement, the broader landscape of the GA with development squads and 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 role of that so it's been really a, just, I suppose just, interesting yeah. and inspiring. Just on,
0: the, just on the development squad, it's funny I was reading a tweet there recently about um, the Scotland under seventeen squad that reached the European Championships, Um like nearly ten years later, um, not one has actually gone on to get a senior cap. You know. So, it's very interesting that I think we should try and widen the net a bit in our development squads. You know, instead of bringing just 25 or 30 players out on the 13 or 14 weekly, we could bring out maybe 50 or 60 in monthly and give them all opportunity. Um, maybe a monthly blitz, for example, instead of just having a set amount of 13 or 14 year olds gone from the club for a long period. Um, and I think that would broaden the net a little bit and we'd keep. More players um, involved that way because club is the club is core to the GA as well, and when these players leave the club and go off of the county, you might not see them for a, for a few months. Again,
1: that's a another really really good point. And you mentioned, you know, you brought in about other sports, and I think there is a, a lot to learn there as well. Just, um, would you have any books, I suppose, you would recommend that you come across as very well, well read on the subject? But uh, again, one of the final questions was, if you had any specific books you think would be a good primer for, for all
0: this? Yeah, you um, have come across Carver Coaching, Paul Kilgallen. Yeah, he's just read some fantastic books. And they're my go-to books... Um, to pick up some little coaching nuggets, I have to say. And uh, he's a fantastic writer and he, he makes coaching um, so enjoyable and he, he writes so well on the topic. So, and that Paul writes is usually a brilliant, brilliant read, I must say.
1: You think you've a book in yourself?
0: Um, maybe down the road, yeah, just trying to kind of uh, get a topic and get something that um my rob's really passionate about coaching but it's just about um to kind of give the reader something to get their teeth into so I'm yeah it has crossed my mind of course so maybe when my kids get a bit older, I get a bit more time right now I am um inundated with driving here driving there coaching here coaching there so uh I'm in the I'm in the middle of coaching on my kids' teams now, so look, maybe a book down the road for sure. That's something I'd love to do, just not great. right now.
1: Yeah, absolutely. But no, we'll, we'll definitely chat again when that one's on the best-selling list. But Shane Smith, um, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for that, you know, that, that that whirlwind tour through kind of GA underage coaching and great to have, you know, great to have you on board. Uh, thanks again.
0: My pleasure. Great to chat, Kevin. Take care.